0: This is The Josh Hammer Show. We're thrilled to bring back to the show a guy who I think is underappreciated within the broader American conservative movement. He's also the president of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which from my perspective is Similarly, one of the great unsung or, again, underappreciated, perhaps, conservative institutions out there. They just do absolutely tremendous work on college campuses all throughout America. That would be Johnny Burke, a previous guest here on The Josh Hammer Show. Thrilled to welcome you back, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for that kind introduction and for having me back on.
0: It's particularly great timing, Johnny, of course, because you have a brand new book out this week, as the case may be. Go figure. This book is entitled Gateway to Statesmanship, Selections from Xenophon to Churchill. And, you know, Johnny, I was speaking at your ISI Society Leaders Conference in Delaware last April. And I heard you give kind of a, a version of this book. It was kind of an abbreviated like here are 30, 35 great quotes from leaders throughout history here. But for those who are not aware of your work in this space, this is, this is quite a tome. You've edited this book with selections from so many of the greats going back to Aristotle, Cicero, Augustine, Machiavelli, George Washington. I mean, going back even further, you have one psalm from the Bible itself here. This, this is quite a work that you've put together. So I guess the first question out of the gate is, uh, why don't you just summarize the project for those who are less familiar? And what are you trying to accomplish with this new book?
1: yeah absolutely so one of the things i think a lot about at isi today is the the quality of the leadership class that we have in america specifically uh the individuals that are running institutions of higher learning and you know the we could give a, a long list that your readers would be familiar with of the the manifold failures um, from america's leaders i think of the former president of harvard at the moment but i think we kind of stop there with the criticism, but but sort of the what comes next, how do we go about actually identifying, cultivating, and educating a new generation of leaders? That's really the the work that we're up to at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. And so what I'm doing with this collection is I'm recovering this historic uh, tradition of literature that goes all the way back to antiquity that was designed to actually form and educate great statesmen by offering them very short, practical, uh, moral and policy advice that they could implement in their own life. And this tradition is called the mirrors for princes. And it, some of the you know, most famous books throughout all of history fell into this genre.
0: So, where does one start when, when one is compiling kind of a, like a grand survey of all that we now call Western civilization? I mean, do you start with the Bible? Do you, do you start with the Greeks, the Romans? Where where does one start? I mean, is it is it even chronological, or do you go kind of substantive subject matter by subject matter when you're trying to prepare a work of this magnitude? How do you go about it? I'm I'm just genuinely curious, honestly.
1: Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great question. So, one interesting thing that I discovered is that this genre of literature existed in nearly every civilization going back to antiquity east or west so it's quite peculiar that in our own american context we really don't have anything like this anymore but nearly in in every civilization when there was a new political leader um there were two types of people there were educators who wanted to offer their services to the new political leader and come on as a tutor to their children, and then there were policy advisors who essentially wanted to be picked for what would have been, you know, the cabinet or the court to serve as an advisor to a future king or queen or, or political leader. And so, you know, I just I just went back to the ancient. So the book works its way from the ancient to the medieval to the Renaissance period, and then I added a few more recent texts from the last hundred years. So that we could bring the tradition up to date but in terms of the you know the ancient world um i included several texts from the you know the ancient uh the hebrew tradition i went back to the ancient persians uh, and then i also included some ancient chinese and indian texts in the genre and then we just we're slowly working our way from antiquity into kind of the the christian era and and then the the west as we know it more contemporary European settings.
0: So I was I was actually underselling. I mean, when I described it as a book kind of focused on Western civilization, I mean, you're talking here about Chinese, Indian wisdom. I mean, we're talking here not just about Western civilization. We're talking about really all of classical antiquity, no matter where that antiquity happened to find itself there. Uh, was, was there any particular work that maybe you were lesser familiar with that kind of stood out to you upon discovering it? And you kind of said to yourself like, Wow. Aha. You know, like I didn't realize how much wisdom was embodied in this one individual or in this one culture that perhaps I didn't read about, you know, when I first started doing this five years ago. What, what surprised you kind of when you were going through this?
1: Yeah, there's so much. I'll, I'll give you one of the ones that's more surprising, which was Artha uh, Arthashastra, which is the Indian text written in about, I believe it was the fifth or sixth century B.C., Uh, And then this ended up disappearing around the sixth century A.D. for a thousand years and wasn't really discovered again, you know, until the turn of the 20th century. And so this was uh, an ancient guy named Cotillia. He advised um, the emperors who would be part of the Marayan dynasty, and he would help them to kind of reconquer some areas that were taken by Alexander the Great and build this ginormous kind of Indian empire. And he offers very interesting advice for political leaders. The beginning of his book um, begins with restraint of the organs of sense. So for him, you cannot be an effective political leader unless you have your your human kind of the human desires for food, for drink, for wine, for women, for um, you know pride. Basically, all of these things that relate to like you know just it, appetites that you have to learn how to regulate. For him, that's the foundation for effective political leadership. But then he really places a lot of emphasis on something that that I think is uh, in great need today, which is the problem of personnel. You know, how do you surround yourself with the right team? You and I have talked a lot about you know the various issues with you know the Trump administration that were you know really driven by personnel choices. Um, and so he goes into a lot of specific detail about you know do you pick your childhood friends should you pick a political philosopher because they know a lot about the world of theory should you pick wealthy people because they have the financial connections and he kind of goes through and and he has different people make a compelling case for each one and then he'll refute each one you know and offer his piece of advice for how to pick your cabinet and you know to make to you know put it more most simply he advises that you pick people not based on what they say, but based on what they have done, you know, so you, you look at their track record and that's how you should judge them. And I actually feel like one of the issues today is almost all the spots just go to the most charismatic people or the most well-connected without really even paying attention to their their track record. So that's one you know, nugget of wisdom from Catilia that was interesting to me.
0: Well, it's all new to me, so I, I am genuinely enjoying the, learn, learning about it from you. So, again, we're talking with Johnny Burke He's the editor of the brand new book Gateway to Statesmanship, Selections from Xenophon to Churchill. And it's really just trying to instill lessons in today's leaders and tomorrow's leaders about what very smart people have said and taught over the years when it comes to political statesmanship and formation of good character and all of the above. Johnny, I can't help but note... If I'm not mistaken, then I'm looking at the cover of, of the book here, which, again, is available everywhere books are sold. And it looks to me like George Washington is on the cover of this book. We, of course, just celebrated President's Day on Monday, although the U.S. government calls it Washington's birthday. is a technical name of the holiday. And a personal note, I, I'm born on Lincoln's birthday myself, so I like to refer to it as President's Day so that uh, old Abe gets credit as well. But this is the week of George Washington. His actual birthday is, is on February 22nd. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about George Washington as well. I, I've seen you in separate writings, Johnny, wax poetic at great length about George Washington as kind of just um, the true statesman, the, the quintessential statesman. If I, I recall an essay from you some years ago now that was really kind of focused on Washington. Talk to us about George Washington. How did he embody in many ways a lot of the tradition that that is included in this book? Was, was he a learned man himself when, when it came to Western Civ, when it came to the great books, things like that? Or did he kind of just arrive to it via intuition, perhaps?
1: No, these are great questions. And you know, George Washington, I do think if you, you just even objectively, you know, from a, looking at it some from outside the American context, I do think as a statesman, he stacks up against the greatest political leaders throughout all of of Western history, you know, going back thousands of years. I really do think he's that great. In terms of his own education, you know, he had a a little, you know, he had a tutor and he had some formal training, but not as much as many of the other founders. He did read, um, you know, Rules on Civility, which was a a book that he wrote, but it was really kind of uh, advice for gentlemen of the time that drew from Aristotle and Cicero. And it was from a a tradition of, of conduct manuals that were popular in France. So he was familiar with some of these philosophers, but he didn't really approach his political leadership from the perspective of, you know, a, a thinker as much as he was a man of action. And that really forged, you know, his his ability to, to be a leader of men. I included um, his farewell address in here. This this was something that the Senate actually had a tradition every year of reading on the Senate floor. I think it's one of the most eloquent and moving uh, pieces of fatherly wisdom uh, in terms of American politics, uh, you know, that, that I think really echoes to our own day. There's some interesting aspects to Washington that are both similar and different to other great leaders. You know, one of the crises uh, that is often explored in this tradition is you have a great leader, they do amazing things, they might conquer an empire and rule it wisely, and then it falls apart as soon as they die right their their kids that you know had been perhaps neglected because they were tending to matters of state and then the whole regime falls apart and so there's this question of whether or not it's great men that change history or it's the institutions that are built you know to endure and so i think george washington you know he has in some some respects many of the qualities that someone like cyrus the great has who is featured in in xenophon's uh portrait of Cyrus uh, in terms of, you know, he was a, he led the army, he was General George Washington. He conquered uh, the greatest uh, empire at the time, Great Britain, that was you know, known to mankind. But then he had a choice, right? He, he could either become king or he could take um, every all of that sort of the power that he had accumulated through that uh, the Revolutionary War and the esteem of everyone in America and And transfer that to the institutions of the u s. Constitution that he built. and And obviously he's he's known as the American Cincinnatus. You know, he chose to not take power after you know, not turn military power into political power, but retire and go back to his farm. And then eventually he was uh, persuaded to serve as as president. So I think the the lesson of Washington, he has those qualities of greatness that you would see in a Caesar, in a Napoleon, in a Cyrus, but then he also had the, the prudence um, and the self-control to, to put that capital into institutions instead of to his own
0: name. Yeah, it's, it's that idea of man in the arena that I think is a very powerful idea. I see that you have a selection here from Teddy Roosevelt as well, who, of course, was uh, explicitly, ex- explicitly big on the idea of being a man in the arena, as his famous speech of that very name would indicate. So we're joined again this week by Johnny Berka. He is the editor of the brand new book out this week, Gateway to Statesmanship, selections from Xenophon to Churchill. We're going to take it to a quick commercial break. We'll be right back with more from Johnny Berka. Johnny, we've touched on a, a lot of people in our, in our brief conversation already here, some, some of whom I, w- I have to admit, I have to confess for, for the listeners, I was very unfamiliar with myself. But is there, is there any other individual writing that you included in this selection that you really are just particularly keen on and you want to make sure that the audience hears it?
1: Absolutely. So I would actually go to my very last um, selection in the book, which is Charles de Gaulle's The Edge of the Sword. So Charles de Gaulle was a a French um, military and political leader in the 20th century. And during World War I, he was a prisoner of war. And he, he, he he was shot. He was wounded multiple times at different points in World War I. But he had a strong sense of shame about this because he spent much of World War I in a prison camp, but while he was there he spent his time you know drinking coffee and reading old books and reading the newspaper and he really wanted to be out there in the arena uh, like we talked about with Teddy Roosevelt and so when he was in his early 30s and the war was over he sat down and he wrote and it's a very short book it's called The Edge of the Sword and he basically describes the ideal qualities that he believes a political leader should exhibit and there's a in particular a chapter on character and on prestige he describes sort of the, the personality, the sense of ambition and drive and how do you challenge, how do you channel that and how does that, you know, how do your superiors react to that when you have this talent? And when he wrote this and kind of sketched out his portrait of an ideal leader, he hadn't accomplished anything in, in his own life. But then he devoted the rest of his life to becoming the man who he described in The Edge of the Sword. And he turned out to be successful, right? He, he always had this sense, even from being a young boy that he would want, he'd be at the helm of France. Like he just knew he was going to rule France. And so he helped defend uh, the French from the uh, Nazi invasion. He founded the Fifth French Republic. He served as president for 10 years and ushered in a whole new paradigm, the 30 glorious years of economic prosperity in France. And to me, it's really inspiring because, you know, here's a man who hadn't done anything and it was relatively young. And it just shows that you know, if you have the right ends in mind and the right ambition and the right mentors that you can really, you know, save your save your nation and make a mark on your country in a profound way. But it does take putting the attention to detail and the effort to articulating those qualities that you think need to be reflected in political leadership.
0: Absolutely. So uh, let's fast forward to the present then. And you know, I, I hate to sound so black-pilled, as the kids say these days, but you know, w- with all of this just rich history as context, and then I look at the current food fights in the U.S. Congress and the fact that we're seemingly incapable of passing any legislation other than the ceremonial or symbolic naming of a post office here or there. You know, I, I, I see these two, uh, you know, eighty-something year olds or close to eighty-year-olds uh, f- fighting it out for the general election this fall. Not not all of whom, no matter what you might say about them, are necessarily keen to open up uh, Aristotle's views on ethics. I guess let's just say right Johnny try to make the book relevant I mean in an age I, I guess where where statesmanship true statesmanship in this tradition seems so lacking seems so short how would you encourage those who are either aspiring for office who are who are trying to be future statesmen themselves or what would your words of wisdom be to those who are currently In office and perhaps flailing a little bit, not sure what to do with themselves, how do they begin approaching these lessons throughout history and then trying to make it relevant to their current lives? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so a few things come to mind. One, you know, for all of the kind of the, the grand ideas in history that we mentioned, this entire tradition is meant to be very practical, it's meant to be something that someone who's very busy, who's a, you know, a statesman, a senator, a governor, whatever, can open it up, they can read a couple of pages and there, there is a practical nugget of wisdom that they can apply into their own life that is not just designed to make them a better person, it also ser- should, should serve their own political interests and ambition. So you kind of have to make an appeal to that. Um, if you're a young person kind of encountering this tradition, you know one of the great pieces of advice that you see all going all the way from Cicero to Machiavelli is that you, you, it's really that you have to fake it until you make it. And that sounds cliche, but really the, the the shortcut to becoming a great person is to start acting like the person that you want to become. If you start acting that way, other people will start to take you seriously and you'll start to persuade yourself that you actually can can rise to the challenge. The second thing is that you really do, if you're a young person, need to be spending a lot of time reading the biographies of of great men and women in your particular field and just immerse, you have to reform your imagination. Instead of letting your your Twitter algorithm or your TikTok algorithm shape your imagination, you need to start tuning into biographies. You can download them on Audible. There's some great podcasts. Um, The Founders podcast I like to listen to kind of gives these short biographies Of great people from history and really you're you're raising the bar for your own expectations for yourself if you're making these people your friends in 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 a sense so these are some of the the tips Um, but i really think it's it's one of those things where no matter what station of life you're in uh, if you want to be better a better you know spouse if you want to be a better captain on your sports team or a business leader there's something in here for you
0: if you had to recommend, just on the point about biographies, if you, if you had to recommend one biography of a great American statesman and then perhaps one great biography of a non-American statesman. So just the top two that come to mind from those respective buckets, what would they be?
1: So for me, my all time favorite uh, is Ron Chernow's Alexander Hamilton biography. Uh, this should be easy to for people to get into in light of the, the musical and the play. But to me, it's just a portrait of, of someone who rose from absolutely nothing to really becoming, you know, the architect of the American constitution and the architect of the American economic system. And then, you know, it's kind of a a tale of how some of his passion, some of his sense of pride, he was never really able to fully get it under control. And he ended up dying in in a duel. It's all it's, you know, it's incredible drama. It's riveting. It's inspiring. And you also see his story weave in and out uh, of the lives of the other founders, Washington, who was his mentor and took him under his wings, uh, mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson and others. So for me, uh, you know, Chernow's portrait of Hamilton is, is quite inspiring. In terms of uh, people outside of the American context, I mean, one of my recent favorites is a book uh, by Peter Ceres, who's a, a, a Cambridge um, historian. And he did a bi- biography of Justinian the Great, who was a Byzantine emperor, sixth century. And what I love about uh, Justinian is two things. One, he took beauty seriously, right? So he was a, a builder of beautiful things. And he understood that great leaders, you know, needed to be- build beautiful things to, to sort of win the support of the people and also to leave an enduring legacy. So he built the Hagia Sophia which is in modern-day Istanbul, which is a church that has stood 1,500 years to this day. He was a builder of infrastructure, and then he was also a lawgiver, and the code of Justinian actually shapes uh, you know, European um, law to this very day. So his legacy has lasted for 1,500 years, and it's a short book, but I found it to be inspiring.
0: Now, wonderful recommendations there. You and I share a mutual admiration for Alexander Hamilton, of course. I, I think that he is... Often overlooked, the Broadway play perhaps has has changed uh, contemporary Americans' views on him. For I would hope for the better, but uh, yes, very, 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 very much a, a a life worth reading about, and substantive political views, economic views, all of the above, of course, also very much worth reading and learning about here. Um, so. John, I'm going to ask you a, a somewhat unfair question, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway there because you are among the the more learned guests we've had on this show when it comes to the, the Western tradition more generally, and as we kind of teased earlier also, frankly, the parts of the non-Western tradition. So if you had to try to summarize what the statesman Ought to be pursuing the substantive goals, the the goals of an actual statesman. Let me put it this way. Someone reads this book that you've just edited, that the great Dr. Larry wrote the preface for. Someone reads this book and 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 you're a you know, you're a twenty-something year old, you want to run for office, you want to put yourself forward there to, to run for anywhere from local city council to US Congress. It doesn't particularly matter there. What should your goals then be on behalf of the people that you are trying to serve in a lowercase r Republican system. What are the actual goals of the statesman in line with this tradition?
1: Sure. I think there's really two that are kind of the most fundamental. And, you know, these are they're big, big words, but I think it's quite simple You know what they mean. The first one is that you have to have a profound sense of transcendence. And the second one is you have to uh, be pursuing the common good. So with transcendence, all I mean by that is a a great statesman rises above the, you know, the partisan and the the, sort of the inner fighting of their political moment and reorders, you know, the nation, the community, the city towards goods that are more fundamental than than politics, right? People have human longings that are deep. They long for the good, Uh, as Aristotle talked about, they long for God and they want their their you know, political system to point them towards these higher and more fundamental truths. And this is why we had the tradition of Thanksgiving Day proclamations where the presidents would actually set aside a day of, of prayer, a day of Thanksgiving to really remind the nation of where the blessings uh, came from in the first place. So I think there needs to be this, 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 they need to be painting with a broad brush and describing a beautiful picture of this world that they want to bring about that can really move people's hearts and not just their their minds. The second thing with the common good, you know, this is really about creating um, the the conditions, the economic conditions and the political conditions so that, you know, ordinary people can live lives of virtue. Right. And what I mean by that is people need to be safe. Right. So there has to be a basic sense of law and order, uh, which we don't have in many of our uh, American cities today. We need to have the rule of law um, so that it's not just you know, people punishing their political opponents through the judicial system. But, you know, actual laws are kind of what is what what is uh, you know, holding people accountable. And lastly, there needs to be a broad based economic prosperity. So we need to restore the middle class. And this is you know very important for statesmen. There's actually a lot of warnings about income inequality in this tradition. And what they're getting at here is less to do with justice and more to do with instability. If a regime is too equal, unequal, and people are in radically different camps of super rich and super poor, the regime becomes unstable. And that's very dangerous because it can lead to revolutions and rioting and leaves you susceptible to invasion from the outside. So at the most fundamental level, you have the, you know this transcendent vision pointing people towards something higher to give them hope and meaning, but also the common good, creating those economic conditions and the basic political conditions so that they can flourish and pursue their own passions and interests.
0: So just to follow up on that, and you're very very much speaking my language here, of course, but uh, there's been a lot of talk on on the American right about this notion of the common good Over, over the past four or five years or so. You've seen the rise of national conservatism or common good conservatism, which to me are, are more or less interchangeable. Um, on, a, on a personal note, I, I've developed this theory of constitutional interpretation that I call common good originalism. You hear talk about common good economics. So there's a lot of talk about the common good. And at least on, on the contemporary American right, it's seen as, as something of a course correction to a, a more libertarian-infused version of what it means to be on the right in America, one that it, that is deeply, deeply imbued by a sense of individual Freedoms above all, without any sense of broader purpose. There, so last question for you, Johnny. I mean, based on what you said, you would view that as a, as a salutary course correction in the broader multi-thousand-year view of things. I would, I would presume, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a course correction from a world that I, I think didn't exist very long, but it's the world you know that we came from, sort of in our childhood, which is you know thinking of of America and Americans as these isolated individuals. Uh, consumers, you know, just purely pursuing their own preferences based on their self-interest. And then with a very abstract conception of what it means to be an American or what the American idea is, something that's not even rooted in a particular place or people, but could be transported anywhere in the globe. And so I think this course correction is saying, you know, no, human beings are not just individuals. They come from families. Those families are part of local communities with their own traditions that are part of ultimately an American nation that is the, you know, a strong union that binds them together. And our, our constitutional order doesn't just exist to secure the rights of, of, of individuals. It exists to secure you know, the rights of us as, as a people. Um, with with certain you know, faith traditions um, and other kind of customs that are part of our Western and Anglo-Saxon political inheritance. And so this common good is really, it's, it's ordering society towards ends that are real beyond just individual self-interest. And I think given that we're uh, just totally awash in consumerism and kind of self-actualization through technology, this is sort of the rooted political vision that American
0: needs. Well, to paraphrase Edmund Burke, the, the nation is ultimately an intergenerational compact between the dead, the living and the yet unborn. And Johnny Burke uh, is the editor of a brand new book out this week, a Gateway to Statesmanship, selections from Xenophon to Churchill. And if Johnny's book is at all successful in getting us back towards that more traditional Burkean conception, then I will prejudge it to have been a great success. Johnny, thanks so much for coming back on the show. You're always welcome here, my friend. Best of luck with the book launch.
1: Thanks, Josh. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian, or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German, or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.